I mean, I'm going to ask again. Are you, are you genuinely excited to be at church today? Because I thought the Savior of the world was born tomorrow, but we'll call it a day, all right? I thought we were at church to celebrate that the Savior of the world was born. I thought we were at church here to celebrate that the one that I can call on whenever life falls apart was born on Christmas. I thought he was the one we were celebrating. I thought the one that was born unto us, a child to be born, a son to be given, that would also be prophesied in the same book to be the one that would be chastised and rejected by men, to be pierced for my transgressions and crushed for your iniquities was born today. I thought that's what we were here to celebrate, is it not? We're not here to just put on our suits and ties and fix our hair so we can look good and have Christmas pictures so that we can post them on our Facebook. We're here to exalt the King of kings and Lord of lords. We're here like every other Sunday to worship the great I am that would put on bone and flesh and walk amongst people like us. That's what we're here today for, right? To celebrate the fact that God had every right to just strike us all down, but he came born of a virgin 2,000 years ago, would be wrapped in linen cloths, lying in a manger. And we'll get to there in just a minute. But that's what I want you to think about today. Are you genuinely thankful to be here? As I get older, I always say this, you know, men and women do two things as they get older. Men always seem to mellow out and women get crankier. Right? That's what I was told. That's what I was told. (laughs) Um, Maybe it's because of the man that the women, I don't know. But anyway, I think to myself for a moment as, as I get older, things start to mean a little bit more. I might become a little more emotionally attached to certain things or certain holidays. And, you know, as a kid, Christmas was all about what gadget are we opening this year to spend as much time playing. Or, you know, I remember that PlayStation 3 for the very first time my brother and I played. Who He happens to be here. I'm not going to have him stand up and tell you how bad I used to beat him. But, but we would play that PlayStation, man. When that thing got open, that PS3 for the very first time, and we had Tyler Hansborough on the NCAA basketball game dominating college basketball. I remember those things. I remember wondering what gifts are going to be there, what's in the stocking. But as I've gotten older, you know, we still enjoy Christmas. We still enjoy the gift-giving aspect of it. I certainly would never tell you not to wrap a gift and exchange gifts and have fun like that. But I begin to grow in more understanding and greater appreciation for the fact that God would come born like me, to live greater than me, to die for me, and then rise to offer me something I could never earn. We can never put a measuring marker on the Christmas gift of Christ. You know, I know how much I spend on Amazon because it's in my cart, it's in my, it's in my receipt. I know how much I spent on my wife. I know how much I spent on this or that. But we can never truly measure how great the gift of Christ being born is. Here's how we get to measure it. Eternity with Him. That's how we measure it. Or you measure it eternity away from Him. You have one of two destinations that we'll ultimately spend. And if we accept the free gift of God through Christ, the greatest Christmas gift ever to be given, then you and I can we can then see for eternity just how much it costs. We can see for eternity just how much we meant to our God that He would redeem us by offering Himself for us. 
Let me just ask you, does anybody remember John chapter 3 when Nicodemus came to Jesus? For those of you that know the Bible, you may know this. For those of you that are new to church as a whole or just never read the Bible, let me catch you up to speed. This very religious elite man, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus by night. He was highly respected. He was highly honored. He was a man that other young Jewish men aspired to be like. People wanted to be like Nicodemus. I mean, he knew the law. He was a religious elite, and he was set apart from many, many men in that particular society. The Bible tells us that in John chapter 3, he comes to Jesus by night. One, because he was afraid that if he came to him during the day and other people saw him, other people would want to kill him as they wanted to kill Jesus. So he comes to him by night, and he's imploring Jesus on how to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's wanting to know, how can we see the kingdom of heaven? How can we see you forever, or or the glory of God forever? And Jesus tells him, hey, you must be born again. But what you see in that story is Nicodemus goes after Jesus, right? Jesus never ran after Nicodemus. Nicodemus would have been one that if you were to be trying to align yourself with the right people, you would have went and pursued Nicodemus, You know, if Jesus was trying to politically align himself or religiously align himself with the people of those days, he's one of the who's who. Nicodemus is one of those guys he would have went after. But what we see is that Nicodemus actually goes to him by night. Then if you flip your Bible over like a page or two, depending on how many words are on your Bible, depending on how poor your eyesight is and how big the print is, right? Uh, You flip over into John chapter 4 where we read that Jesus has, as he's leaving Judea, and he's going north to Galilee, instead of taking the typical Jewish route to bypass Samaria, the Bible says that he had to pass through Samaria. And if you remember that story in John chapter 4, as he's passing through Samaria, he is passing through in such a way, he is weary from his travel, he finds himself at a well with a woman that was an outcast. Remember this woman? The woman that had been married numerous times, and now she's living with the man that's not even her husband, which was forbidden by God. And, and she's there in the middle of the day, which represents that she was not socially accepted, because if she was socially accepted, she would have went early in the morning, or she would have went late in the evening, so that the sun was not beaming down on her as she traveled to the water. If you remember that particular story, Jesus reveals himself to her. Let's just explain who she was. She was an outcast. Isn't it strange that Jesus was sought after by the religious elite, yet sought the outcast? Now, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. And we'll get back to that here in just a moment. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we're going to read through verse 18. We're going to read, guess what? The Christmas story, right? The Christmas story. Who, 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 whose mind is just blown, right? So, in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we read that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And we see that all as they went to their hometown, Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth. Okay? So this is a very important detail in the Christmas story that maybe we just never really pay attention to. So he's up north in Galilee from the town of Nazareth, and he's going to Judea to the city of David, which is called what? Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David. Very important point. We remember Jesus was to be the king of kings, right? Through the lineage of David, gives him the right to consider himself to be king. So now, okay, so he's going from where? Going from Galilee, from Nazareth, going down to 
to Judea, to Bethlehem. And now we see that he's going to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, his fiancée, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Thank God, all the people, right? All the broken people, all the addicted people, all the hurting people, all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a royal priesthood, right? Or you will find a great palace or a huge throne or many, many, many riches. No, he says, you will see a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and then lying in a manger. Suddenly there was an angel... With the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So is there peace with all of the world? No, only with whom God is pleased. That's why there is no peace running around the world right now. But there is peace for those who are in God, right? Even when the world is completely chaotic and broken and evil and so unpredictable and so uncertain, you and I can still have peace. We go on to read, When the angels went away from from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. I want to end there. I know there's a lot more that we could read and discuss about the Christmas story, but I want to read that portion of it, and I want to point out a few things that demonstrate the glory, the beauty of who God is and the way in which he came. And I have five things. I don't know if we're going to get to all five things. I'm going to try to get to all five things. I might have seven or eight things by the time we're done. I might just get through two. But I wrote down five ways that we see the beauty of who God really is by the arrival of our Savior here on earth. The first one is this, that God strategically orchestrated a census. See, next Sunday after church, Mikhail and I and our our girls were all going to go up to a town by the name of Dupo, Illinois, which is about a 70-mile journey. And we're going to go up there and celebrate Christmas. And you know, it takes us about an hour and 15 to an hour and 30 minutes. That's dependent on, one, traffic. Two, the behavior of my children, how many spankings we need to pull over and provide. Or three, whether I need a drink or an ice cream on the way up. You know, it's Christmas time, all right? Uh, No, but it, it takes us about an hour and a half, we'll just say it, depending on very, you know, various things. In this particular day... Remember where Joseph was. He's up here in Galilee, right, in the city of Nazareth. But in order to be registered, he has to go south where to where? Bethlehem, right, into the region of Judea. So to understand this, we have to understand the distance in which was the separation here. It was about a 70-mile journey from 
where they were living to where they had to be registered. So in this day, this was not get in the Toyota or get in the Nissan and I'm just going to drive down the road for about an hour and a half and be there or an hour depending on the interstate. This was a four to five days journey. This was a time in which they would have traveled by foot. They would have traveled by donkey. They would have traveled by whatever means they could, but it was many days of travel. So I want you to understand that. Why is that important? Because they had no reason. It's not like they were just going to go down for dinner in Bethlehem. It's not like they heard of the great restaurants down there or the markets are greater down there, and we're just going to go shopping at the farmer's market in Bethlehem or down in Judea. I mean, this was a very intricate detail in which we see that our God has a very strategic nature, okay? Our God is not a fly-by-the-seam-of-our-pants kind of God. He's not a God of disorder. He's a God of order. He's a God of strategic moves. He's a God of moving in very precise ways. And we see that in the Christmas story. If you remember, in the prophet Micah, Throughout the Old Testament, we were prophesied about this coming king, but very specifically in the book of Micah, we're prophes- or we see a prophecy of where this child, where this king would be born, and Micah prophesied that he would be born where? Bethlehem. See, most, Mary, Moses, and Jerry, uh, Jerry and Moses, they had no reason <laughs> to leave Galilee. They had no reason to travel the 70 miles in the four to five days that it took to go to Bethlehem. So God uses a Roman official to organize and to send out a decree in which they are required to be registered. Therefore, they have to be drawn from Galilee down to Bethlehem. It's also why on the day of Pentecost, in which the whole gospel was proclaimed in various tongues and languages, and then they would go home from that, that feast, that great celebration to their homelands and how the gospel on one day could be understood in so many different tongues and languages would then proceed to be dispersed outside of there. God is very strategic and orderly. And what this teaches us is that this was inconvenient for Mary and Joseph. This was not comfortable for Mary and Joseph. They did not say, hey, let's travel to Bethlehem on the back of a donkey nine months pregnant because that sounds like a really good time, right? I've been there with Michaela four times now. For the last two months, she's hurting. If you've been there, you've been there. Your feet hurt, your back hurt, your head hurts. Everything hurts. The last thing you want to do is go ride on the back of a donkey where every step you're hitting the rocks and walk by foot. Anybody want to just walk 70 miles just for the heck of it because, you know, I'm nine months pregnant. Let's see if we could do it. No, probably not. None of us ever want to walk 70 miles. But here we see God orchestrate a plan to draw them down, which teaches us that God moves in the times in which we are under, you know, misunderstanding or might even look a little inconvenient to fulfill what God's called us to do. Or maybe there is no clarity in what God is doing, but God is always doing something. God is always using all things for our good. God is always working in our lives. It may not look beautiful and it may not always feel good, But God is always going to move in our lives. Second thing we see is that God chose Mary, a very young girl, to carry Jesus. Think about this. They're engaged. She's a poor woman, a poor teenager. Joseph's a carpenter. Very young. They're engaged. They're in love, ready to get married. And she 
receives the news that she was chosen to carry the Savior of the world. She goes to Joseph to tell her, I'm pregnant, it's not yours. Right? To think about the details here, that God almost divided a family before it ever began, but then reconciled it by allowing Joseph to be, you know, the angel revealed to Joseph what he was up to, and that this child would be the one to save his people from their sin. But he chose a young girl that had nothing to offer. Joseph didn't understand it at first. I mean, let's be honest. He may have said, okay, the angel told me, but I'm still a little doubtful. Which then teaches me that there's times where God uses you and blesses you, and it doesn't make sense to a lot of people. There's times where God gives you a, des- a, des- a desire or a dream or a vision that doesn't really make sense to a lot of people. It, it, there's times in our life where God calls us to things, then we explain those things to other people, and they question, is that really God or is that just you? I mean, I mean, there's times where, where God calls us to things, and even those that are closest to us, I mean, Joseph and Mary, they're about to be engaged. They should be probably pretty close at this point, right? They should kind of understand each other. They should know a little bit about each other. They, they are about to be married, and Joseph is ready to de- silently and, you know, in a very kind way, divorce his fiance at this time because he doesn't quite understand what God is doing in this particular moment. It reminds me of the time that I get home from North Carolina. Well, I got home while we were living in North Carolina and I was so excited to tell my wife, I believe that God's called me to preach. I was so excited because I truly felt that God was calling me to preach and I could not wait to tell her. And she asks, you? <laughs> you. Yeah, me. No, really, you. See, there's times where God is doing something in our lives that doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Now, I, I mean, I'll be honest with you, there's, for the longest time, it was really hard for some people to probably see any authenticity in my ministry, and there's probably some that still doubt. There's probably still some that question. There's probably still some that question what you're doing or why you're doing it when you believe wholeheartedly God has called me to do this. I mean, there's not a lot of clarity with it right now, but I believe God's called me to walk in it. And eventually, as you look back, you will see the truth as the truth. And I feel like as we've lived a little while in ministry and as God has blessed this church beyond measure, I can't help but to look back and say it had to be God. It wasn't me. For sure it wasn't me. It had to be God. So when I look back and I look at all the people that discredited, questioned, doubted, some of them had a right mean to. But I look back and think this was truly God doing something that was impossible to me. But nothing is impossible to him. So if you find yourself there, God's calling you to something. God's laying something heavy on your heart. God's opening doors or he's pointing you in a direction. Just because people don't quite understand it doesn't mean that you should be, allow that to choke out the dream, the desire, the vision, the calling and the gifting, the equipping that God has placed on you. Because here's what I've come to realize. I don't control the favor, the blessing, and the hand of God. He does. And if God's hand is on something that Michaela and I are doing, You can't be mad at me. People can't be mad at me. I can't wonder why it's happening this way, or I can't, you know, wonder or try to answer how the church grew and how people are being saved and how we've been able to reach community. I can't answer those things. 
It's the hand and the favor and the blessing of the Lord. Third, we see that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Let's just understand what Bethlehem really was. Bethlehem was not a big popular city. Many scholars believe that it had a population of about one to 2,000 people. It was a city in which there was really no relevance to. It wasn't like a place where people traveled to. It wasn't a place that had a lot of you know, prosperity. It wasn't a place that had a lot of trade. It was literally a really, very rural area. And I, I, ha- I have to kind of picture as you're driving from 185 from Potosi to Sullivan, that's kind of what it looks like. I mean, people are spread out. There's fields all over. There's, there's you know, a little bit of a little bit of crowd here, then there's miles with nothing. I mean, Bethlehem was really of no relevance in that particular day. In fact, when you go to the Old Testament, Bethlehem wasn't even considered to be part of the lineage of the nations and of the tribes of Israel. But because God promised he would be born in Bethlehem, guess what? He was. And Bethlehem was a place of smallness. It was a place of irrelevance. And whenever we think about Jesus being born in Bethlehem, I can't help but to think that some of us feel like Bethlehem at times. Do we not? We feel like we're all alone. We feel completely irrelevant. Has anyone ever asked, There's, or how in the world can God truly love me? I mean, have you ever asked yourself that question? After all that I've done, after all that I've said, after all of these heinous actions of mine, after all of my past, how in the world could God truly love me? Why would God choose someone like me? If you've ever lived a little while, you've asked that very question. And I can't help but to encourage you and try to picture Bethlehem, a place in which no one else would have chosen, but God chose to deliver his son and the king of the world there. And if you ever find yourself in that particular moment, you feel like Bethlehem, complete irrelevance, and like no way that anyone or any reason that God would choose me or anyone else would choose me, I want to encourage you to know that God chose Bethlehem just as God can and will choose you. So whenever you find yourself in that moment of irrelevance or uncertainty, questioning or complete doubt as to why or how God could ever love you, let me just tell you that God will meet you right there. God could have chosen every city under the sun. God could have chosen the most beautiful castle, the most beautiful kingdom. He could have created the greatest city in the world and the most glorious cribs to be born in and the most beautiful nursery. But he was born in Bethlehem, laying in a manger, a place in which animals would eat from, to demonstrate the humility in which he would come, to to teach us that he can be for people like us. We then see that Jesus was born as a baby. Not any other way, I guess he would be born, right? Came as a baby. Isn't it strange to you, though, that the Savior of the world, God in flesh, would come born as the most dependent creature on the planet? I couldn't help but to think, you know, you picture horses being born, and what do they try to do as soon as they're born? They try to what? Stand up, try to walk. Baby elephants at the zoo, you know, the, the babies at the zoo being born. Those animals try to walk, then they try to eat. I mean, we're talking like just moments after being born. What does a baby do? I mean, really? You've got to hold their head up. You've got to, you know, change their... I mean, a baby is the most dependent, yet most beautiful thing, of course, to be born. The most dependent creature on the planet is a newborn baby. They can do nothing for themselves or for you. 
right? I mean, they, they literally need you to do everything for them. Hold their head up because it, you know, falls back. Uh, You've got to change their diapers. You've got to put clothes on them. You have to feed them. You have to remind them, hey, it's time to go to sleep. Let's rock you to sleep. Oh, let's eat again. Let's change you again. Like they can offer nothing for themselves. Yet Jesus comes born as a baby to demonstrate that he would come in every form of humanity so that he could save all of humanity so that he could relate to who you and I are as people in those moments of our brokenness, in our moments of temptation, in our moments of pain and suffering, he can fully relate because he was fully man. So he comes as the most dependent creature on the planet. One, just demonstrate his fullness of humanity. But then there's times in our life where we feel completely hopeless, right? I mean, a baby is literally helpless unless you help it. Jesus came born completely helpless as a baby in human form to teach us that whenever we find ourselves feeling completely helpless, we have one we can call on. We have one that we can lean on. So whenever you find yourself in that particular moment of life where you feel hopeless and helpless, there's nothing that you can do to fix the situation. There's nothing you can do to reconcile the relationship. There's nothing you can do to provide the finances needed or or desired to to take these next steps. There's nothing you can do to fix the mental state in which you find yourself in. There's moments in life where you and I might find ourselves feeling completely helpless. But we can be reminded that through the Christmas story, Jesus demonstrates that even he was there in human form, but he was so much greater than just a human baby. He would then rise to be the one to redeem us, to make us new. Therefore, whenever we find ourselves there, we can still trust him. When we find ourselves completely dependent upon him because we don't have the strength to get out of bed, we don't have the ability to fix it all, we can still depend and trust on him. And lastly, we go to the announcement. Let's just go back to the announcement. After Jesus was born, I, I'm not even hitting on the place for them in the end. You know, I, I, I was thinking about that this week. If you remember, they had to travel 70 miles. And if it was just Joseph alone, he probably would have had a place in the end, right? Because he wouldn't have had Mary dragging him behind. You know, she's nine months pregnant. She can't move very fast and it's completely uncomfortable. So by the time they get there, everybody else is already checked into the end. Everybody else is comfortable and, and they are in pain. She is in complete pain. So whenever they get there, of course, there's no room for them in the end because everybody else is taking up the rooms. There's no vacancy here, right? So they find the stable and they have a little manger and they, bear, and they you know, lay Jesus in. After Jesus is born, it says in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. We just sang about the shepherds watching their flocks by night. I think one of the reasons we just read through this and not really grasp what God did in this very moment is because we have a poor understanding of the day, right? I mean, it's 2,000 years ago. We don't quite comprehend the context in which Jesus was born. Let me just remind you, a shepherd was not a career that little boys grew up saying, I want to be a shepherd one day. They did not. Shepherds were truly considered like the lowest of lows, Shepherds didn't make a lot of money. It didn't pay all that well. It definitely did not smell all that well. You are living with animals. You thought teenagers were bad? This was much, much worse. They are living with animals. 
They were walking where the animals walked. They were lounging where the animals lounged. It also wasn't a very safe job all the time. I mean, there were moments in which you would have to defend your flocks. Or like, you remember the story of Moses? What was Moses doing when he ran away? He was a shepherd for who? His father-in-law. Right? You'd be the guy to go to your father-in-law and tell him, hey, all your sheep are dead. It did not fly in that day. You'd be the one to say, hey, we lost all of our livelihood because I fell asleep when I was supposed to keep watching at night. You'd be the one to allow something to come and to devour your livelihood. That was not a very safe job at times, so it didn't pay all that well. You know, kids didn't grow up thinking, man, I'm going to be a shepherd one day. It didn't smell that well. It wasn't always comfortable. You're tired. There's long days. It's raining. You have nowhere to get and to, you know, have cover. Like, it was not an enjoyable thing. These were the lowest of lows in that society. They didn't offer anything to society, really. They're out with the animals. But the greatest announcement to be made up to that very moment in time in human history is made to whom? Shepherds, watching their flocks by night. You would think if God in flesh is being born, I mean, God is coming to earth, you would think that the the most powerful people in the world would have received this message first and then went and proclaimed it. No, God chose to go to the lowest of lows. And then he announced himself that the baby was born to these shepherds. But then the shepherds were the first ones to go and to affirm this baby as being born, the Savior being born. And then they went and they told other people about it. And the Bible says that others who heard it wondered what the shepherds told them. Isn't it beautiful how God came? I mean, we see that he was born in the most irrelevant place to redeem the most irrelevant people, to meet us in our most irrelevant moments. He was, he was born as the most dependent creature on the planet to provide us hope whenever we find ourselves helpless. I mean, he was born and, and, and he was carried by a woman that, that was, had really nothing to offer but he came in humility. And then he's born, lying in a manger. And the first people to see him, the first people to receive this announcement, were nobodies. They were outcasts. I couldn't help but to think of Nicodemus coming to see Jesus by night. Jesus didn't run to him, Nicodemus came to Jesus, imploring how to see the kingdom of heaven. He says, you must be born again. Jesus has to pass through Samaria, in which he is wearied from his travel, sits down at a well with a woman who was an outcast, who was in that society the lowest of lows. Jesus had to pass through there. And when Jesus had to pass through there, he sits at this well, takes a drink with this woman, and then reveals himself to her. Just as he revealed himself in announcement to the shepherds, which teaches me and encourages me to know that God can use the most irrelevant people. God can save the most unsavable people. God can use the most helpless people. God can take the people that have nothing to offer to society and do many, many things through. It just reminds me that the beauty of Jesus coming, it, we see that he truly came for people like us. Jesus did not come for the healthy. He came to what? Seek and to save the lost. He came not for the healthy that need no physician, but he came for those who are spiritually 
ill. So when the greatest announcement ever made up to that point in human history was made to people that had no business knowing really, it demonstrates to me that God can use anybody to accomplish anything. Which tells me that if you find yourself in that, po- that point ever in your life where you believe there's no way God could ever use me, there's no way that God could ever empower me, there's no way that God could ever love me or save me, there's no way that I'll ever be you know, in good standing, I want to remind you that through Christ you can. There's two types of people in this room. There's people that have received the greatest gift of eternity. They're the greatest gift of this side of eternity that will then lead to eternity with him. The offer of Jesus Christ. And there's people in this room that may not. Maybe you've come to church today because it's Christmas and you want to, you know, look good, feel good. But maybe deep down there's no genuine, genuine faith and relationship with Christ. And if you were to be honest, you would say, well, there's no reason God would ever desire someone like me. But can I just remind you this Christmas that Jesus came for you. Jesus came for you. Jesus came for, for me. I mean, think about that. Someone like you, if you are here today and you are saved and, and you're going forth and proclaiming the gospel, let me just remind you that Jesus came for you. And he not only came to save you, but then he came to use you for his work. So this is my prayer for you this Christmas. One, that if you are not saved, if you have no relationship with Christ, if you feel like there's no way he would ever desire you or love you or forgive you, let me just remind you that he came for the lowest of lows. He offered himself for the lowest of lows and the highest of highs. He didn't come in some grand form of royalty and riches. He came born in a manger, born in a stable, laying in a manger, wrapped in linen cloths, born to a very poor family, place of complete irrelevance, and then announced and shared with the most outcast type people in their day. Jesus came for you. Jesus came for me. And then he empowers us to share his gospel with the world. So my prayer for you is this, that if you are not saved, that you would accept the free gift of salvation through Christ alone. There is no other way to see the glorious riches of his kingdom. But you must be what? Born again. You must be born again. And anyone in this room, regardless if you feel like you are the lowest of lows, you can be born and saved. You can be born again and saved by the glorious riches of our King. And if you're here today and you are a Christian, you are a follower of Christ, you've come just because it's Christmas. I'm excited to worship. I can't wait to continue to come each and every week. I can't wait to get back to life group. I can't wait to you know, continue on in this journey. Let me just remind you that he has called you to be used by him. It is our time as a church to truly see the the glorious riches of his blessing and of his favor over this house and to take our gifting, to take our desires, to take our dreams and our equipping outside of these walls and reach the world that he has placed us in. And maybe just maybe people in this community, people in your family, people in your workplace, people on your Facebook page will wonder at the things that you know, like they wondered about the things that the shepherds were told. So I think it is truly, truly desirable for you and I to adore him today. You know, if I could sing, I think there's one thing that I'm going to be frustrated when I get to heaven that now I get to sing, when everybody can sing, really. I want to sing down there. If I could sing, I would have sang, oh, come let us adore him to finish this. Because 
you know, the Savior of the world was born on Christmas. The one that came for people like you and me was born on Christmas. We better come and adore Him. We better come and praise His name. We better come and offer ourselves to Him. And the song says, Oh, come let us adore Him. Oh, come let us adore Him. Christ the Lord. Let's pray.